BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Koston. We're in the final countdown to the midterm elections. And as usual, there are a lot of polls flying around about who's up, who's down, and what that means for the House and the Senate, for democracy, for you. But after the disaster of the 2016 poll predictions and 2020 feeling off base too, I've got a lot of questions about what we're getting wrong in A, how we conduct polls and treat poll results, and B, whether our increased interest in polling is a good thing for our politics, or really, for us. Anyone who knows me knows I hate the horse race polls leading up to any election that treat major elections like fun sporting events with zero consequences. I used to report on sports. I love sports. But politics are not sports. Sports are entertainment. Sports are fun. They don't determine if you can live in a certain neighborhood, get to work on time, or get work, period, or afford to feed your family. Politics do. But clearly, there's an appetite for predictive polling. So who better to confront with my problems with polling than two people who deal with polls every day? Nate Silver, founder of the website 538, and Margie O'Mara, a longtime Democratic pollster and consultant. Margie, Nate, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. First, we're going to talk about the benefits you both see to polling and how it affects our politics. And then I want to ask just basic questions about how polling works and what our other options are. So for listeners who don't know, let's start with Margie. Will you give us kind of the elevator pitch of the type of surveying work that you do? Yes. So I do polling and focus groups for Democratic candidates and progressive causes, including The New York Times, where we've been doing focus groups uh, monthly for the opinion pages, America and Focus, but also for candidates for office up and down the ballot and for organizations like AARP. And just to follow up on that, what does it mean to be a Democratic pollster? How does party identification affect or not affect your work? It's a great question. I mean, one is you believe in the blue team, right? You're wearing the blue jersey. And so you want to help Democrats get elected and you want to better understand how people view issues that affect people across the board through a Democratic lens. And so um, that means helping candidates with their strategy, helping organizations with their strategy. It also means bipartisan and nonpartisan work, too. And it doesn't affect how we think of our methodology. I think Democratic and Republican pollsters have the same kind of attention to detail when it comes to their methodology, but it does affect the kind of projects you want to work on. And Nate, for listeners who don't know, what work do you do in the polling space? So I'm not a pollster. Instead, I'm a forecaster, I guess you'd say. So I build models for 538, which make forecasts of upcoming elections. Polls are a primary input in that forecast, but they also look at other types of data, such as fundraising or past history of voting in a given state or district. So to some extent, my job is also to figure out how accurate polls are. Our forecasts are probabilistic, For example, as I'm taping this right now, I think we have Democrats with like a 66% chance of keeping the Senate, which means two out of three. 
you mentioned that your work focuses in some ways on reading polls. And I know that I'm not alone in being distrustful of polling. But I think at a top level, my concern is that polling is often an effort to make people, individuals, make mathematical sense. You want to look at how people vote and think about them as singular entities when that's not how many people vote. So, Nate, to start, what do you think polling is good for right now in the weeks leading up to the midterm elections? So one thing I think polling is good for is being a check against media BS, right? Traditionally, the reason why news organizations like the New York Times or ABC News have done polling is because it kind of lets you have the voice of the people. You can send a reporter out to a diner in Youngstown, Ohio, and get a supposed sample of public opinion, but a more quote-unquote objective way to do that and a more rigorous way to do that is to try to randomly call anybody in a particular electorate, a city, a state, the nation, and see what kind of real average people think. So that's kind of like the romantic idea of polling. Um, I think the problem is kind of more with how users use polling and not with the polling itself. Margie, do you agree with that kind of romantic idea of what polling can do? Well, so I do think, I read this somewhere, I can't take credit for coming up with it, that research should both confirm and surprise. So you don't want to have a poll that comes back and like every single number is a surprise, right? That feels like something (laughs) maybe has gone wrong somewhere. Um, So it should be, it's to check your assumptions, right? So we're not simply, you know, kind of sticking our finger in the wind. Now, I love doing qualitative, so focus groups. I love them. I love moderating them. So the combination of surveys and focus groups allow you to really not see people as a number. And I think just to give a couple of examples of how polling can be helpful to kind of tell Americans that they're not alone or on the issues of guns and on the issues of abortion. I mean, think of how many polls there have been that have shown that 90% of Americans believe in universal background checks and, and a variety of other gun policies that have majority support, despite the press coverage that says this is controversial. The other side is very vocal. This is, you know, dividing America. But really, actually, when it comes to a lot of these policies, there is a lot less division. Same thing with abortion. There was a lot of coverage after Dobbs. And some of it seemed surprised that a majority of Americans actually supported Roe v. Wade, don't want to see abortion banned. I mean, really at odds with what's happening in a lot of states right now. So I think that that leads me to how honest people are with pollsters. Maybe to your point, Margie, especially when you're trying to talk to people about specific issues, how do we know that people are being honest with the pollster, who they've obviously never met, or being honest about their views? So I'll answer about surveys and I'll answer about focus groups. So In surveys, there's been a lot of testing of this and a lot of exploration of this after 16, 20. So there have been experiments. Pew did an experiment where they randomized whether people would be conducting the survey online or by telephone and then asked them the same questions as a way to measure whether the hypothesis being there's no incentive to lie online the way there might be to a pollster about your views on immigration or Trump or something else. And they found really almost no difference between the two methodologies as a way to show and demonstrate that people aren't lying about their views. Now, in terms of will people be honest and and how they talk to you? I mean, in focus groups, I'm really struck. and, And in fact, this is increasing. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot is how open and honest people 
have been about the pain that they've been going through since the pandemic and even more now this year, I routinely have people, you know, open up with incredibly personal stories and cry. Just this week, I had a focus group of seven women and three of them teared up about things that had happened to them personally without going into a lot of detail. Focus groups we did for AARP, you know, a woman talked about how since her husband had died, no one had, you know, she hadn't been held or hugged in over a year. And everyone in the focus group said, well, we would, if we were in person, as opposed to on Zoom, we would hug you. The stories that people have been sharing in qualitative tell me that people don't seem to be holding back. They want to talk about the pain that they're feeling personally and how they feel about what's happening in the country right now. Yeah, I... I don't think honesty is the central issue, at least when it comes to candidate choice. Trump voters usually aren't shy about liking Trump. They have yard signs for Trump and mega hats sometimes and things like that. Now, they might not tell you why they're voting for Trump. Maybe it is because of like racial sentiment or anti-immigrant sentiment, but let's just say, oh, I just like lower taxes. I like how he's shaking up the system. The main issue is that when you have response rates that are that low, they weren't getting enough Trump voters on the phone. It wasn't that they got people who lied about their preference. Mm -hmm. We know that response rates in telephone surveys are declining. Nate Cohn of The Times just said last week that in a poll they were working on, only 0.4 percent of dials yielded a completed interview. And I think that polling often determines where energy goes in politics. Polling both reflects politics in the national mood, but also shapes them. We use them to determine if someone can participate in a primetime debate. It tells people which candidates are long shots and which are sure things. Do you see any harms, Margie, in how polling can shape our politics? I think, you know, if you go back to the presidential debates on both sides in past years where candidates had to reach a certain threshold in order to get airtime on the debate, and that led to people making some decisions to spend all their money on kind of stunts to juice their poll and to try to make sure they could get in the debate stage. And that, I don't know if that became ultimately a good use of polling. And there were pollsters who decided public pollsters, we don't want any part of this. We're not going to release any public polls because we don't want to be part of this, you know, our polls used this way. And I think that's something that, you know, horse race polling in general is at least what campaign pollsters try to tune out, right? Because you're right, it does simplify things and it leads to decisions in newsrooms and newspapers and so on, resource allocation decisions that may not reflect a candidate's ability to surge or connect or meet people or understand policy or all those things. Now, if you were doing internal polling, you can measure some of those things. Your internal research, you can show people video of your candidate. You can read descriptions of the different candidates. You can see what kind of positions people like and, and you can, you know, have a sense of whether there's a path. But that's not the kind of work that newsroom polling and the public facing polling usually does. And I I think that's where, you know, a lot of people get their sense of what polling is from that public facing newsroom polling. And it's different from and less complex and thorough, you know, on behalf of a candidate or on behalf of sort of where, you know, thinking about what voters agenda might be than internal polling. So Margie sees harms. Nate, 538 has heavily contributed to layperson interest in polling. It has contributed to my interest in polling. Do you see that as a net good or a net bad? Um, I think that, well, let me put it like this. I come from a view where despite kind of being a media elite myself, 
I've long been skeptical of how the media covers campaigns. Yes, I have also been. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think there's a lot of conventional wisdom. I think there's a lot of extrapolating views from your kind of social bubble to the electorate at large. I don't know if I trust people in the New York Times page one meeting or the ABC News conference room to have a good take on kind of what the actual American electorate thinks. I think it's probably getting more and more true as people who work in media have college degrees and kind of live in dense, diverse urban cities that may not kind of reflect what voter opinion as a whole looks like. And so I'm kind of a big proponent of crowdsourcing <laughs> wisdom and democracy, right? Much media coverage is driven by assumptions about kind of what the public thinks. And I think investing more time in learning what do people actually think is is probably good. When it comes to like refreshing 538 600 times before <laughs> the election, is that good for society? I don't know. I mean, I think there's a demand for horse race coverage in general. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, like studying public behavior and public opinion is essential. Polling is not the only way to do that by any means at all. But understanding how regular people think is to me at the core of, of politics, really. I think for me, I obviously want to know how everyone thinks about specific issues, but I am a little concerned with how regular people think about polling. And I think that some people think about polling like a betting line in sports. I used to be a sports writer in the olden days, and I think about sports a lot. And let's say that tomorrow Iowa State football is playing Texas football, and currently Texas is favored to win that game by 16 points. Does that mean that Texas will win that game by 16 points? No. My concern is that people think of what you are telling them, what polls are telling them, as saying, ah, this is what's going to happen. This person is up by 12. This means either this person is so likely to win that I could vote for the Libertarian Party candidate and it wouldn't really matter, or they are so likely to win that we should just basically start talking about them as the for sure victor. So I've talked a lot about how I think politics is not sports. Sports are fun. Politics is not. And horse race politics, is, I think, is hurting our national dialogue. But, Nate, do you think that regular people at the base level are just looking at polling wrong? I mean, I think at 538, we do everything we can to try to remedy that. And in some sense, the basic idea of 538 is that it's all about probabilities. Now, whether people interpret the probabilities right is another question entirely. But we've tried with language and visual cues and with different ways of presenting the numbers kind of every way that we can to encourage people to think about what the uncertainties are in polling. At the same time, people are adults, and I think adults should be able to understand that life isn't usually a 100-0 binary, nor is it always 50-50. There are some many things in your life that are probable to occur but are not certain. And some things that are improbable will happen occasionally. And so at some point, <laughs> I think if you're a journalist of any kind, you have to have some faith that people use information wisely and that putting accurate information out there, including accurate information about probabilities and how well they're calibrated over time, meaning that if you have a 70% chance of a candidate winning in a certain state, they're supposed to win seven out of 10 times and they're supposed to lose three out of 10 times over the long run, I, I think that does provide some type of public service. But, you know, I don't know, maybe people are <laughs> naive. I also think, though, that journalists sometimes do a disservice because they don't understand 
probability very well. And they misinterpret polling in ways that lay people actually may have better intuitions for. Sometimes I think things get lost in translation. The most famous case of this is, of course, the 2016 election, where according to our model and our analysis, the polls showed a pretty close race. All these swing states that Trump won in the Midwest, these were not huge surprises. If he overperformed the polls by just a few points, then he had a pretty good chance to win the Electoral College. And and that was not translated in media coverage about the race. If you read headlines on Election Day, it was not what the 538 model said, saying Trump had a 3 in 10 chance, right? It was treated implicitly as though Trump was an extreme 50 to 100 to 1 long shot when he wasn't. I think one of the challenges when you have coverage of polls in general is that there's a sense in folks who cover politics for a living that that everybody is following politics for a living. And if you asked me who was slated to win some game, Jane, I'm I'm I would have no idea. I'd be guessing <laughs> like the wrong sport, the wrong league, the wrong season. I would just be making up a name of an animal and like as my guess. And that's how a lot of voters are approaching politics. They are not following the polls. They're not like, well, I should be doing this because I read the, you know, Suffolk poll, but then, you know, Mom has had a poll. Like that's not what where voters are. And it's because they have a different job. They their job is not the same as our job. And we should not expect folks to be following these things closely. Certainly not the people who are late deciders, swing voters, lower turnout in a midterm election. So need kind of a reminder of, you know, what's on the ballot. And I think that's just an essential reminder. Um, That said, it is true that people don't like polling. I mean, that's true. Like they may not be following it as closely. But, you know, when I started doing this 25 years ago, before there were multiple Nates and, you know, and people had no idea what my job was, even though I learned quickly to not tell strangers what it was. But people would say, oh, you're an upholsterer. That's so cool. I'm like, no, no, no I'm They're like, oh, that's not very, that's not cool at all. I'm sorry. I take it back. So um, even though it is a way to give voice for voters, you know, it is a way to make sure people are listening to voters rather than to, you know, their advisors or to who, you know, comes up to them or who sends them the most letters or what have you, or what they see on the news. Despite that, I think a lot of people see it as like an ugly side of polling as a sign that candidates don't have core beliefs or that they don't have core principles. And and that, that doesn't have to be true. That's not true. I think the thing Margie said earlier about how it's really difficult if you work in media or politics or especially media about politics, it's really difficult to understand that the average American is not consuming the same diet of information that that you are, right? So understanding when the public is well-informed enough for, for a poll to reveal something about public opinion, I think, is a big thing, right? Unlike some people, I think sometimes there are more problems with respect to issue polling as opposed to horse race polling. Because horse race polling is so simple, you can vote for candidate A or candidate B, things like how you frame the question don't tend to matter as much. And for issue polling, it can. Nate, how do you think about midterm polling? If there's limited information in a presidential race, for a midterm election at the state level or the local level, it can be even worse. So how much data do you need to have to decide ethically, yes, this is enough information about John Fetterman or Dr. Mehmet Oz to distribute a poll? I'm not sure if I (laughs) like the notion of me kind of playing ethicist necessarily. But look, in general, the further you go down the ballot, the less accurate polls become. That if you're asking about who you're going to vote for for county dog commissioner, 
people don't know very much about. They might just kind of like randomly select a name, whereas they know more about the governorship or the presidency or the Senate. Although, ironically, polls did quite well in the last midterm in 2018 after having not been very accurate in 2016 and 2020. Do you feel that, you know, after 16 and 20, when you see the polling that comes, do you feel like it's changed? Do you feel like people have been changing their tactics to adjust to, you know, post-20? And if so, is that consistent across party lines? I don't know. Maybe I should have more conversations with pollsters like this. I mean, I do think there's reason to be concerned about the long term of polling, right? Which is that as response rates decline and decline and decline, it gets harder and harder and harder, and you have to work more and more magic to to make the electorate representative. I think pollsters have pretty strong incentives to be accurate. That is one thing that gives a poll an advantage over other media coverage and why I somewhat resist the idea that, oh, well, a poll is just a snapshot. It's not a prediction. Well, like, actually, a poll creates some accountability, right? You're making a specific number or forecast, and you can like gauge that against reality. And we don't necessarily have that many opportunities in life to like make a public test (laughs) of our method against some objective quote unquote benchmark. So I think there's some utility to that. I know I would like to see pollsters have a good year this year. That's for sure. (laughs) And particularly not to have a, a democratic bias. I mean, the issue is not so much that polls are inaccurate. You can kind of adjust a forecast for that, right? If now polls have a de facto margin of error that's higher than it was 20 years ago, you can adjust the probability calculations to account for that. If they have a predictable bias, though, in a democratic direction, for example, that problem's harder. That will lead to, I think, less trust among the public. It also means, like, if you're doing a poll and the idea is to be able to sample every American, are you actually getting disadvantaged or disaffected groups? If you're not, then the romantic notion of polling is much less appealing. If you're only getting kind of intense news consumers who follow every issue religiously um, because they're the ones who are excited when a pollster calls, then the service that polling does is undermined. The people listening to this podcast. Yes, yes. (laughs) I regret. Yeah, if you listen to this podcast, don't answer the poll. No, I'm just kidding. break, what if we just got rid of public polls altogether? You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening.
We've been talking a little bit about the potential flaws in polling, or perhaps more accurately, the flaws in how people interpret polling. And earlier we talked about how polling can shape our politics. But I wanted to ask Nate, is there a case for keeping polls as private predictions for those who commission them rather than having them be public? I mean, again, I am not the kind of person who thinks it's ethical for the media to withhold information (laughs) from people. So that's my kind of ethical view, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I think voters are entitled to say that this candidate is very likely to win. Therefore, I won't take time (laughs) and vote today, right? I mean, I think people should vote for the same reasons they might serve on a jury or whatever, right? I think it's like a, a civic duty. But like, I respect someone who doesn't believe that and says that it's not worth my time. I'm a busy working class person. And like, I do think voters should know, though, that like elections where the outcome is secure, there has to be a pretty big margin <laughs> in the polls, right? A 30-point race, yeah, it's probably safe. A three-point race, probably not. And you should vote for utilitarian reasons, much less if you have any any duty to do so. I mean, the truth of the matter is people want to vote not based on polls, but they want to vote based on how they see the differences between the two candidates. They want to make informed decisions. They may struggle to feel informed. And is that because of the media or is that because people are looking to different places? You know, I I can't answer that question, but I do sometimes worry that the coverage of polling takes away, not that itself is wrong, but is it taking away space that should be going to other kinds of stories about differentiation between the candidates? In some races, maybe there's not that much time to devote to a specific contest. And if too much of it is devoted to a poll, then that takes away from that kind of information that voters want. Just narrowly speaking, I would love to have more polls of individual congressional districts and races for the House. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that like horse race polling is doing a huge amount of like good for the public. I agree. But I also don't think it's doing that much harm. And I think like the amount of interest in the horse race is probably fairly finite, right? You know, I think kind of an eat your spinach mentality in media tends not to work very well. At least polling-driven discussions are somewhat informed by kind of what the actual trends in the electorate are, as opposed to kind of what someone on like a Morning Joe panel wakes up and feels like one morning. So it's like, if you're going to have this area of interest, then do it the right way, right? If you're serving hot dogs and hamburgers, have them be like good hot dogs and hamburgers. Don't pretend that they're kale, though. Margie, what kinds of information, when you talk to voters in your focus groups, what types of information do they ask for or say that they wish they had? You know, if I knew what they like to do in their free time, like what what do voters want to know more of? I do ask people sometimes, what do you think these candidates do in their free time to get a sense? Because it's, you know, you want to get a sense of what they think of these folks as people, right? Or if you saw them at a cookout, you know, what would they be like? And then I have a question that I ask, If the candidates had taken truth serum, so you knew they'd have to answer and they had to answer truthfully, what would you ask them? But I get, I'm surprised to hear people say, I want to know why actually they want to do this. Like what makes them think that they, that they want to run for office and why do they think they can help? Like they want to know about their motivation and, and intention. And it surprises me that that's the question that people say pretty frequently. So there's something about like wanting to know the authenticity behind the motivation for folks that is obviously hard to, it's hard to discern. Um, so that's something that people say they want, but also, you know, there's a kind of 
this isn't just candidate specific. This is just overwhelming sense from folks that they don't know how to find correct information. They don't know how to trust the information that they're receiving. And even when presented with objective coverage of things, people are not sure what to believe. So that's not new, but of course that's, you know, getting worse. So I think my last question actually goes to Margie, and it'll be a quick one. We've talked about how voters use polling information. Is there a better way for politicians to use polling information? Because my concern often is that, granted, I'm a selfish person, and I wish that there was more focus on the issues I care about. But I'm aware that the issues I care about, when you look at polling, they barely crack 5%. So how should politicians look at polling data? Should they do what I want them to do and be like, actually, I'm just going to do what Jane Coaston wants me to do? Or (laughs) is there a better way forward that meshes real concerns a lot of people have with polling data that's also real concerns a lot of people have? Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. It, it it really, I think, speaks to the world that goes beyond horse race polling. Because if you are running for Congress, you're running for office, you may not have room in your poll to test, you know, 30 issues that are of interest to you to see which are the like three to eight you want to spend most of your time on. But there's a huge group of organizations really devoted to a lot of these issues, whether it's criminal justice reform or other topics, and they dig deep on a couple of issues and then say, okay, this is the way it may not be top of tier right this minute, but if we want to get people more engaged, here's how people approach it. This is how we might want to talk about it. This is a word or phrase that that makes people think about it differently, or we want to use this kind of example or this kind of story when we talk about this issue. So this is a lot of the work we've done with Navigator Research, where we have regular polls, and each poll will have a deep dive into views on policing or vaccines or healthcare or what have you, January 6th, et cetera, and to just get a sense of Here's this topic. And then you can take the top ways of thinking about it for another poll that really is designed to do something else. Because ultimately, what the real limitation is for a lot of this work is how much attention you have for a respondent. You can't ask them two hours worth of stuff on a telephone survey that you won't be able to. You may want to, but you won't be able to. So a lot of that means taking the work from all these organizations that are fighting for, you know, the Jane organization of like (laughs) Jane's top agenda. They've already tested it and said, okay, I have Jane's agenda. Here are the ones that you should really talk about. And here's the best way to talk about them. As I work forward to get Jane's agenda into legislation. um, We can help you with that. (laughs) Okay, that's very tempting. Margie, Nate, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Well, I've enjoyed it. It's great to talk to both of you. Definitely. Talk to you both soon. Margie Omero is a principal at the Democratic polling firm GBAO. She's convened some focus groups for Time's Opinion as part of the America in Focus series. You can find those at nytimes.com slash opinion. Nate Silver is the founder and editor-in-chief of 538. His book is The Signal on the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Durba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuelewski. My son had a gift with technology. 
with reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program. The world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project UP, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 